This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to the Krishna Das Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishna Das shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishna Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. Actually, we should pause a moment and realize we're seeing Krishna Das at 9.30 in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, I never thought I'd say this and actually mean it, but good morning. And I first, uh, I grew up in New York City, and then, of course, I left and went a whole variety of different places, and only, you know, like 13 years ago, something like that, uh, went back there to stay as an adult because I was working on a book, Faith. And I was looking for a place to stay, and my friend offered me her apartment for a few months. So Christian uh, Dyson and I were in touch, and he said, you want to meet for lunch? And I said, sure, what time? And he said, like, 3, 3.30. <laughs> I said, what time do you have breakfast? <laughs> like, like, oh, okay, that's when I got it. <laughs> but here we are, both of us. Wow. Yeah. People are asking, are you going to be there tomorrow? Hello. <laughs> He stayed up all night just for this. Just so I could make it. <laughs> uh, so when I was having breakfast in my sleepy mind, the memory came back that I said I would explain um, Lily's joke about humidity in Hawaii. Many of you, no doubt, have heard me tell the story already. But uh, when I, the uh, retreat, that is largest and, and was for a while the only retreat happened in December. Um, so uh, the first December that I was going, it was like a miserable winter in the East Coast. So here's the, you know, setting the stage. It's December. It's Maui. Uh, Maui is just like unearthly beauty. There aren't even words to describe how beautiful it is. And this particular retreat, as is the case with the upcoming retreat, um, is in a resort uh, right on the ocean. So, you know, it's like the beach is right there, the ocean's right there. And um, uh, and I went that December, and it was a retreat, right? So it was on my public schedule, but I did something extra, like I tweeted about it. And all these people started writing me like, wow, you're on Maui. 
And then the guilt arose. And I found myself writing back saying, it's very humid here. <laughs> it's just, it's terribly humid. There, there's, there's too much nature. It's too much nature. Yeah, yeah. Wait, that was our line for long. Too much nature. That was Costa Rica, too. That was really too much nature. <laughs> and, uh, and I sometimes I tell this story. I often tell this story. It's kind of in the context of um, for us to examine, like, how do we relate to pleasure, really? Because it's not that simple for many of us to deeply enjoy something without either that extra thing of clinging and wanting to own it and keep it or even actually avoiding it. And how do we relate to pain? You know, can we have compassion rather than shame and so on? And even how do we relate to neutral experience, the kind of ordinary, repetitive, routine things where we normally snooze or whatever? Anyway, so back in Maui, that became a thing because I, I mentioned it in the talk. And I was leaving the meditation hall one day, and behind me was a friend and the now adult son of another friend. And he was saying to her, oh, my mom really wanted to come to this retreat. She was so, so close. And at the last minute, she realized she couldn't do it. And she feels so terrible about not being here. And without missing a beat, my friend said, did you tell her how humid it is here? <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of became a thing, you know. And then the next year I arrived on Maui. I was at the airport. And uh, <clears throat> totally out of context for most people in the world, I tweeted out, Oh, it's not that humid here. And all these people started tweeting me back like, well, you're on the wrong side of the island for humidity, you know, or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, that's, I don't know how it's going to be in May. I've never been to that resort It's just going to be so. too hot. Hot, 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 hot. Hot, 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 Don't worry, we won't enjoy it. <laughs> that's the lesson. <laughs> and it's not a bad thing to look at how we... Uh, relate to pleasure, how we relate to pain, how we relate to neutrality, just in a, even a simple way, you know, throughout the day with life experiences, because there's, there's so much of our work right there, uh, because there's so much possibility right there. You can't stop the pain from coming. You can't keep the pleasure forever, but we can be very different in terms of how we receive it, how we take it in what we do with it, and so on. So there's tremendous empowerment right there. And then uh, people have asked me to talk about real love, which I thought we were talking about all along. Um, you just have to say it, real love. Real love. Now we said it. Uh, I mean, this too is a title that I didn't particularly choose, but I don't know what else it could be called, so there it is. Um, and... Uh, the structure of the book evolved so that, um, as is the, I think, the structure of the exploration, which is interesting, uh, the first whole arena is love for oneself. Like, so many times we think love for ourselves is narcissism or self-preoccupation. It's a little bit too much. It's like being conceited. And, and yet, really, I think it's the opposite of those things. And uh, very much in that sense in which I was talking yesterday about inner resource, it's so hard to give from a place of feeling deprived and, and overcome and sort of broken. Very hard. I mean, if we do give, we care, we share, we serve, it's from a kind of funny place sometimes, you know, obligation or show or something like that. But 
to have that really beautiful heartfelt sense of of offering it needs to come from somewhere inside so that sense of um wherewithal resilience um self-respect uh is also um interesting to look at uh the difference between self-esteem and self-compassion and you know we did talk about self-compassion really as playing a role sometimes a, a unspoken role in meditation practice where self-esteem is also good you know we can be so focused on the negative like i can't fix a computer and you know i can't do this and i can't do that um and we don't necessarily celebrate you know wow i learned how to do this or you know look at that you know i took a risk and i i was feeling really shy but i went over and i said hello or you know whatever it might be and we do need to celebrate those aspects of ourselves and our lives just to have a, a fuller more real picture but self-compassion isn't about that self-compassion does come up when we've blown it you know when we've made a mistake when we haven't been perfect um you know so rather than identifying rigidly with i'm the person who and i always will be uh we have that ability to kind of bounce back and um not be so enmeshed and and kind of caught in what is really just one aspect of of our life experience it's one aspect of our day um and it's it's very tender you know uh one of the main pillars of self compassion is uh recognizing this is a human experience there's nobody who's so perfect you know there's nobody who never ever 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 wishes they'd done something differently there just isn't and if if there are those are the real narcissists you know and then we're in pro- we're in real trouble um you know so part of that is also understanding our you could say our inner critic um which is why i'm very fascinated by that moment say in the practice where you're resting your attention on the feeling of the breath and your mind wanders then what you know that's such a fascinating moment like how do you speak to yourself and if it's a really harsh punitive voice can you say it again like just start over or this happens to everybody now start over whatever it whatever it is sometimes what people do and and there's a lot um in the book about this um is they almost give their inner critic a kind of persona sometimes a wardrobe a name and then you can develop a different relationship with him or her um my inner critic is lucy uh and that comes from something i've also written about at different times um seeing a cartoon once uh from the peanuts comic strip and in the first frame of the cartoon lucy is talking to charlie brown and she says you know charlie brown what your problem is the problem with you is that you're you <laughs> and then in the second frame of the cartoon poor charlie brown says well what in the world can i do about that and then in the third and final frame lucy says 
I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. Um, and I saw the cartoon. I was, somebody had rented a house for several friends to sit a retreat in, and someone had left it on the desk in, in what became my bedroom. So every time I walked by that desk, I saw the cartoon. And somehow my eye would always fall on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. Because the Lucy dominant voice had been so strong in my earlier life. And uh, one of the mindfulness techniques that I exist that I've been highly trained in that is an optional experiment is called mental noting, where with the breath, you start not just feeling the breath, but silently repeating in, out, in, out. And then if something comes up that's very, very strong, not like a little dwippy thing, but, you know, strong emotion, strong sensation. If the word comes easily, you place a label on it, like, oh, thinking, joy, sorrow. So, I mean, that's a whole, you know, learning, and it's an interesting technique to experiment with. So I had done it for years, so I felt like um, out of seeing that cartoon, I got two new mental notes. One was, hi, Lucy. So what happened was that soon after I saw it, when I was practicing, something actually great happened for me. And my very first thought was, it's never going to happen again. And I just labeled that. Hi, Lucy. But my favorite, actually, was the second form of that, which was, chill out, Lucy. Chill out. Now, that's different from, you're right, Lucy. You're always right. It's also different from, I can't believe Lucy's still here. I have been meditating longer than many people in this room have been alive. And Lucy is still here. Damn it. She's know. been meditating, too. She's been behind me the whole time, <laughs> tapping. Could have sat a little longer, you know. Um, so there's something in that relationship that is uh, so transformative for us. Not falling into it and believing it completely, letting that voice take over. Also not fighting it and hating it and being ashamed of it. That's what we call mindfulness, right? It's slicing right down the middle. And there's even a kind of warmth there, a kind of tenderness, like, hi, Lucy. So in, in uh, an extreme oversimplification of uh, this Tibetan Buddhist technique, they would sort of say, invite Lucy to dinner. Like, keep an eye on her. You know, don't let her have the run of the house, but you don't have to be so afraid, you know, of those voices, of those forces. You can hang out with them. Your awareness is actually stronger than they are. Just invite her to dinner. So I, I said that in a group somewhere, and someone in the group didn't like it. And so I said, how about a cup of tea? And they said, how about a cup of tea to go? <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> invite Lucy in for a cup of tea to go. But you get what I'm saying, I'm sure. You know, it's something about that relationship that can shift. We're present, we're balanced, we're even tender. Like, poor Lucy, what a role to play in life, you know? Uh, so there are lots of ways like that that we work to actually deepen the forces of self-compassion and genuine love for ourselves. And so then the whole trajectory, the whole second section of the book is love for an other, which isn't necessarily romantic, um, though it can be. It, it's uh, any other. Um, 
as I said earlier, you know, I, I did a lot of uh, the book by just sitting with people and hearing their stories. And the very first group I did uh, was in New York City. And somebody there raised his hand and he said, you know, most people think of a good relationship as 50-50. My dog and I, we're 100-100. And I was very late with this book. So a long time later, I was in England. Um, my deadline was August 1st, and this is the night of July 31st. Uh, and I was about to press send. So I say sometimes I was like two years late and seven hours early with the book. <laughs> so I was about to press send, and I remembered that story. And I thought, did that make it through, like, all these, you know, transitions? And I looked at it and hadn't. So I added the story back in and I pressed it. Um, but, you know, it could be a neighbor, it could be a parent, it could be a child, it could be a friend, it could be a pet. But our lives are about relatedness. Um, this, is, this is how we spend our, our days, you know. And so what is the quality of that? And, um, and it's all uh, very much kind of the same considerations. Is there balance? Is there genuine generosity compared to martyrdom? You know, and just uh, giving from a very funny place. And how much does the love we can cultivate for ourselves come into that other realm of, of being, which is so important for us, really? And then the third section is kind of the further evolution, which is the love for all beings, uh, which blossoms, it, it, it yields kind of a love for life, which doesn't mean we like our lives and everything that's happening. It doesn't mean we like all beings. It doesn't really mean we like anybody. Um, and this is, you know, part of what was coming up yesterday when, uh, you know, we said, Neem Curly Baba said, Never throw anyone out of your heart. And uh, my friend Sylvia Borstein added to that. She said, Never throw anyone out of your heart. You might throw them out of your life, but never throw them out of your heart. Uh, and that sense of kind of fundamental connection to others. Um, Bob Thurman is here uh, teaching another workshop, which was the nicest of coincidences for us uh, to see him. And I often quote him. Um, because he, at times, quotes this story or just this like image. He said, imagine you're on a subway and these Martians come and they zap the subway car so that those of you who are there are going to be together forever. He says, what do you do? Somebody's hungry, you feed them. Somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down. Not because you necessarily like them or you approve of them but because you're going to be together forever. Our lives have something to do with one another. They're actually quite intertwined. They're interconnected. So guess what? That's how things are. It's not because we want them to be that way. It's not because it's always pleasant. Like, oh, good. You know, I think we used to live in a time where it was easier to believe that what happened over there would nicely stay over there and not kind of ripple out to affect us here, but it's just not true. And you don't need to have a particularly spiritual perspective to know that. Science shows us this. 
Environmental consciousness certainly shows us this. Economics shows us this. Even epidemiology shows us this. A friend um, of ours was a, a technical advisor on this uh, movie, Contagion. Did anybody see it? So this was a movie where they, they actually modeled out, so it wasn't just like wildly fictional, you know, like they modeled out um, basically the path of an epidemic. So the story is basically somebody day one has a bad day in Hong Kong, and day four, like half the earth is decimated, you know. So he, had, he was a technical advisor on the film, and he was in New York, and it was opening, so he brought me in. But it was a kind of movie-going experience where, like, if somebody sneezed, everyone else in the theater was like, ah, <laughs> my God, you know. <clears throat> so we don't always like the consequences of being disconnected, but we are disconnected. And so what would our lives look like from the basis of honoring that? And recognizing that. Maybe we would kind of love everybody, but not in the sense of, I would like to spend time with you, or I approve of you, uh, or I like you, or I hope you continue on doing what you're doing. None of that, but some kind of deep sense that our lives are intertwined. So that's sort of the, um, the culmination of the book. Uh, I ended the book, um, uh, and then, you know, turned it in, turned it in for editing, and the main critique I got was, you didn't really end the book. And I said, of course I ended the book. I ended the book, <laughs> you know. I even put the dog story back in, what do you mean? Uh, and she said, no, you didn't end the book. It just kind of drifts off, so. I just could not end the book. I'd stare at that screen. I stared at that screen for months. And I couldn't end the book. And then the US election happened, and I ended the book. So I'm going to leave you in suspense <laughs> as to how I ended the book. But it was very interesting. It's just like, oh, there it is. Um, yeah, so it's an exciting moment in time for me. Um, I do go into a studio tomorrow and begin the audio. Somebody here just said they like my voice. Thank you. That was really nice to hear. I don't ever listen to my voice. I have one of those things. I don't listen to my voice. I listen to him. <laughs> Actually, would you like to read my book? <laughs> I have a secret copy. I'm, as soon as I get home, I'm going to start at the end and go backwards. <laughs> you could start at the end. That's the way I read the newspapers. Okay, so that's real love. And I don't know if we're going to have time this morning for questions, but if you have any questions, you can. Is it something else? You, you mentioned uh, that moment when, when you're, like, trying to pay attention when you're meditating or something, and then you're gone. Yeah. I always, what, what fascinates me is, like, uh, when you recognize that you're gone, you're actually already back. Mm-hmm. So... How does that happen, right? Well, it's because it's like reality is like gravity. When something goes up, gravity brings it back down because gravity is, that's what it does. So our true nature is always here. And when we go away, it brings us back. 
And our job is just to recognize, become more aware at that moment that we are aware. And then you, you recommit yourself to the practice that you're doing at that moment. And what happens, I think, I'm hoping, I mean, it's not too late, but that, some, that as time goes on, the amount of practice we do shortens that gap when we're completely not here. And then we, we automatically, miraculously recognize that. That gap, that period gets shorter and shorter. And gradually, you're just here all the time. Even if your mind is going, your thoughts are going, I mean, stuff is happening. You stay here. You don't go away. And uh, so the thing about the chanting is they say in, in India, you know, they say that these names that we're chanting help us help ground us in that place that's deep within us. So that's why I always point out to people, don't, don't get too fascinated with me and my experience while you're chanting. It's not really about that. We're planting seeds, that seeds of, of the recognition of our true nature, which bring us back from being gone. And when we're back, we're back. The next thought might be Lucy or somebody else, right? But before Lucy can even say anything, we're back. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get a vote. The more aware we are in those moments, we, we can then come back to the, to, to the center of attention. And a great Lama once said, what most people call bliss is just a little less pain. And he's, that's accurate. You know, bliss is our true nature. It's not something we can make happen. It's, what we make happen with our will is new experiences. But it, the real stuff is deeper than that. And it's through practice that that rises, that we become more aware of that within ourselves. It's not an act of will. Awareness is not an act of will. It's actually who we are. The will, or the, the so-called positive ego, healthy ego, is to get our asses down to do our practice, wherever that, whatever practice that is, whatever form or shape that takes for us. That's lucky Bob's not here because he doesn't like to hear. He keep, we talk about practice all the time. He says, what, enough of practice. When's the concert? You know. <laughs> but that's just Bob. That's yeah, he doesn't like that word. What? He doesn't like that word practice. He doesn't like the word practice. But he, he practices huge intensely all the time. So anyway. So I was glad you said that. Any practice because it it's certainly the case in chanting, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. It's sure. the same process. Yeah. I there's one the subtle difference is one of the differences is when you watch the it, it's it's not really different, but they do say that these chants have a have a quality that attracts our minds mm -hmm. just like a magnet it's a mag like a mag has a magnetism but the breath also because the breath connects you to here when with to your attention so that also has it but in india there different practices work in different ways and they're all good you can do them all different times and uh, you know they all help they all feed into that drawing us back from being gone.
And enlightened beings are, are fully present in, the, in what we call the past, the future, and the present moment. So there's, we're the ones who are stuck in time, you know, because time goes with this body and this psychological makeup. Hanuman is called Trikala Vishram, the, the dweller in the three times, past, present, and future. And Krishna says in the Gita, I come as time, the great destroyer. Right? And what he's saying is, at that moment, he shows Arjuna his true form. And all beings are coming into Krishna, and all beings are coming out of Krishna in this endless flow, this endless circular flow. And at the same time, nothing's happening because it happens in time. And Krishna is time, so there's no... When you go to that level of being, there's no coming and going, even though it looks like there is. Because you're present... It's, you're aware on two levels, ultimate reality and relative reality. So, but you don't have to understand any of that, because I don't. <laughs> but that's what they say. The Gita is a great book, really a great book. It's really extraordinary. Um, it's really not very well understood by most, a lot of people who think they understand it. There's a, a book by a, an Englishman called The Yoga of the Bhagavad Gita, which is an extraordinary book. It's a little bit dense because it was written in a style in the 30s in India by an Englishman who moved to India like when he was 20 years old and spent his whole life there uh, living like a sadhu. And uh, he was a very far guy. Sri Krishna Prem was his name. And he says every chapter of the Gita is a yoga. And every and Krishna brings Arjun to reality step by step. And the first yoga is the yoga of the desolation of Arjuna. The only requirement for the spiritual path is desolation. Hi. Welcome. You know, it's because one has to turn, one has to recognize that this world, like Buddha said, everything here will, turns out to be unsatisfactory in the long run, in the sense that it doesn't last. And so when, when you recognize that, that water doesn't come from squeezing on a rock or a stone, you stop squeezing and stop hurting your hand. But until the moment that you finally recognize that real happiness, did you write that book? I wrote that book too. <laughs> I thought so. She's got everything covered. I give it up. That real happiness doesn't come from grabbing more stuff or pushing some stuff away. That's when you really enter onto the path. That's when you really finally get going. Because you've recognized that it's just not possible to do it that way. So you have to let go of something. It's kind of poignant for a while until you really get over it. And then, uh, then it gets really good. It all becomes 
Christopher the Mill, like somebody else wrote. What is this? The morning of book titles? What, what is your new CD? Do you have a title yet? For my book? No, your CD. Your new one. My new CD. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, my, my book. I don't know. Uh, I'm thinking of calling it Trust the Heart or Trust in the Heart, something like that. Which that would not, be a good book title. Which I stole. <laughs> It's okay, I stole your heart as wife from one of my CDs. <coughs> which I stole from the third Chinese patriarch who wrote a sutra called the Trust in the Heart Sutra. And he says, the great way is not difficult for those with no preferences. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but once again, preferences. You want this, you don't want that, right? You push this away, you hold on to that. That's why the path begins when you, rec when you start to realize that you can't get it either way. That happiness is different than pleasure. And happiness is different than the, than the lack of pain. But it doesn't prevent us from trying to deal with our lives in a, in a wholesome way and get the things we need. Hanuman is a very the unusual path, you could say. There's, there's a shloka. I keep saying I'm going to try to find the shloka, and then I forget. But they say Hanuman not only bestows liberation, but he makes it possible for us to satisfy the desires that we have that will, will be helpful to be satisfied. And that's very different than a renunciate path. It's not a, a path of renunciation like a sannyas path, you know, a monk path or a celibate path. And Maharaji was very much like that. He, 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 he made it possible for people to satisfy desires they had, but in a way that wouldn't hurt them. Like, look at me. I wanted to be in a rock and roll band. I wanted to be, you know, like that. But at the very moment when I got the opportunity to do that, I had already committed to go to meet Ramdas, to be with Ramdas for the summer. So I couldn't accept that invitation. If I had accepted that invitation, I'd be dead. A long time ago. But here I am. I got a band. <laughs> a great band. Let's hear it for these guys, huh? All right, all right. <laughs> and I can do it sitting down. <laughs> Fantastic, right? What could be better? Poor Mick has to stay in shape so he can jump around on stage. Right? Piece of cake. I just get a crane to pick me up and carry me to bed. That's all I have to do. <clears throat> all right. All right. Someone has the microphone out there with a question. Someone has the microphone. Yeah. Now, I want to tell you, we have a hard, a hard end at 11.30. We have to stop at 11.30. So just remember. Yeah. Okay. This question is for Sharon. It has to do with compassion. When someone has hurt you or betrayed you, how, does, how do compassion and forgiveness relate to each other? 
<laughs> Start with the easy question. Uh, I was just, I was laughing because I was saying to somebody last night, I don't tend to like to use the word forgiveness um, because I find it such a loaded word and so many people mean different things by it. And again, Sylvia Borstein, who's great fun to quote, she said, forgiveness does not mean amnesia. <laughs> which we tend to think it does, that forgiveness means wiping out the incident and uh, saying it didn't matter. Maybe it matters quite a lot. And uh, maybe there's a lot of energy you have to put forth into trying to make sure it doesn't happen again, you know. But I also feel like I personally have heard a lot of stories um, of people coming through something, and I would call what they're describing forgiveness and and not uncommonly they'll you know they'll tell this incredible story and then they'll cap it with but i'll never forgive them and i'll think well like i was i was teaching in israel once and uh somebody was in the course who was clearly very uncomfortable and physically and uh my colleague gave a talk on forgiveness so he came up to complain to me about it and he talked about being in a, you know, a terrorist incident and his body like trashed. And, um, and he said, uh, I'll never forgive. And he said, but what I've learned is absolutely essential is to stop hating. And I thought, I'll take that. You know, like, I don't care if you don't call it forgiveness, you know, like that's immense, you know, every day you're in pain and you're committed to not hating. So it's something like that. Um, compassion and uh, sort of not obsessing over the harm someone caused and rigidly identifying them as only that person forever and yourself as only that person who suffered that forever uh, is kind of the way. It's, it's remembering the immensity of change, even if someone hasn't changed, you know, uh, that potential is always there, kind of the bigness of life. Um, it's not that different from what I was saying yesterday about loving kindness for a difficult person with a text say, imagine this person is an infant, you know, as helpless as any infant and as subject to the treatment of others as any child. And imagine them dying. And, um, you know, because the truth is that we come to the end of our lives and it's like, what? And some people live lives of, you know, a lot of bitterness and a lot of uh, rage and a lot of fear. And there's so much more we're capable of. And so that's a basis of compassion. Um, you know, so it's just, but in no case does it mean saying what happened didn't matter or you're going to get over it, you know, or, or, or not consider it. Um, it's more like that narrow, that fixedness of view. You know, I'm only going to think of you in terms of that person who did that wretched thing. Um, if you really want to be audacious, um, there's a, a reflection that's sometimes done before loving kindness, and then there's a reflection that's done when that's impossible. Okay, so the reflection that's sometimes done is uh, the instruction to look for the good in someone, even if it's like a tiny little sliver in a sea of 
negative behavior. And it doesn't mean you're trying to pretend or deny or, or be deluded about the negativity. But when we obsess about, like, all we think about is how awful somebody is, we naturally feel further and further and further distant. Whereas if you can think of one little good thing, then there'll be a sense of a bridge. And from that vantage point, we can honestly and directly look at what's wrong. And it's tough, you know. Uh, this was one of the instructions I got when I went to Burma in 1985. And my first thought was, I'm not going to do that. I don't even like people who do that, you know, like look for the good in people. Like that's what stupid people do. But I was very far from home. I was in a Burmese monastery, and it's a very traditional culture. And the teacher-student relationship in a traditional culture like that is not one where the teacher suggests you do something and you say, I don't feel like it. It's like you do it, you know. I mean, you, you can always ask questions. It's not that. But uh, that attitude of like, show me why, you know, that's not there. So I did it, and it was so interesting because I found it worked in just the way it was suggested it would work. You know, not that I got all stupid and, and weird, but, for example, I thought of somebody whose behavior I, I generally found quite obnoxious. I think very reasonably so. And I was actually there witnessing him once do something beautiful for somebody else. So it wasn't even like I could convince myself I misheard or it was the wrong rumor. I was there. I saw it. And he did this kind thing for somebody else in a really beautiful way. So she didn't feel condescended to or pitied or anything. He just did it beautifully. And I saw that. And it came up in my mind. And then I thought, I don't want to think about that. That complicates things. I liked it better when he was all bad all the time, you know, but... Life is complicated. We're all complicated. So that's an experiment. And there are times it will not work. It's too much to ask of oneself. Uh, and then the second reflection comes up, which is something that the Buddha said, which is that all beings want to be happy. Everybody wants a deeper kind of happiness, a sense of belonging, a sense of connection. We all want that. And the force of ignorance is so strong. We have been taught so many things about what will make us happy. And we believe a lot of them. And we create so much suffering for ourselves and for others in that kind of misguided attempt. But the attempt itself is right. It's rightful. We should be happy. Everybody. And so if we can only peel away some of the ignorance and figure out how to actually be happy, we'd be better off. So that's an interesting reflection to do. People tell me even, somebody told me that uh, at work when they're having a big meeting and everyone's sitting around the conference table, they look at everybody one by one and silently think, well, you want to be happy too. And you want to be happy too. You want to be happy too. It's kind of an interesting way of changing how one is, is relating to others. Also, you know, um, if we look at our own lives, we can easily see many instances where we've hurt other people. And if we look closely, we can see that mostly it came out of our own suffering, our own pain, that we extended it and hurt someone else. And you, can, you begin to see that other people also, it's exactly the same. They hurt others 
coming out of their own suffering that they can't deal with either. So we see that we're not that different than them. And then it gets hard to be really angry at somebody because we're exactly the same, you know. So. Yeah. Um, I've been on the planet for more than 75 years and have so far survived two cases of cancer. So it has made me pay a lot of attention. And part of what I've been doing is, I guess what we do when we get older is doing a lot of life review and looking back at a lot of the things that I did earlier on and really coming to the terms with some of the things you were just referring to of, I hurt a lot of people. I was like driving a Harley Davidson sometime and just, you know, mowing people down and not and being very heedless and not paying attention to the harm that it caused. And then now in this life review, thinking about that, but also thinking about Lucy or Lucifer. <laughs> Lucifer. <laughs> Furry Lucy. Yeah, right. But but wanting to walk a middle road between taking responsibility for the harm that I've done, but also not beating myself up. So anything you can say of usefulness about that, I would really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, that is the middle way, and it's a really good question. Um, sometimes in uh, Buddhist psychology, they make a distinction between uh, remorse and guilt. They're actually two different things. Remorse is that pain, you know, we recollect, and I think everybody does it in uh, some process of introspection, whatever sparks that kind of introspection, we end up doing a kind of moral inventory. And the times we've broken harmony, we've been careless, we've hurt somebody or hurt ourselves, it, it comes up. And uh, the idea is to recognize the pain of that and to, in effect, let it go and move on because it's not all that we are, it's not all that we've done. Um, it's good to have it part of the picture, but don't let it take over as though we're the only truth of our experience. And in fact, I was just, because um, I did this evening with this guy, Frank, who's the, one of the people who began Send Hospice, and we were talking about the dying process. And I said, you know, one of the things I've read is that the Buddha said, if you're with someone who's actually dying, remind them of the good that they've done. And that puzzled me because I, I was afraid, like, wouldn't that make the person more attached? Because you're supposed to be, I mean, if you know them as specific as you can, like you were a really great cousin, you brought me to the park, you pushed me on the swings or whatever, you know. Um, wouldn't that make them more attached, which is the last thing you would want? But a lot of people have asked me, I always say that because that's what my understanding is of what the Buddha said. And every single time the person's come back to me and said it was the best thing. You know, it just changed the energy in the room. It, like, reminded people of love, you know, and and the good stuff of life. And so I asked Frank, and he said, absolutely. You know, that's an effect what you do, even if you don't know them. Um, you know, so what we don't want is that rigid identification. like, uh, And that is more reflective of the state of guilt, where we're stuck. It's like we just go over it and over it and over it and over it. We can't sort of feel the pain of it, let go, and, and move, move on or move to something bigger. Um, it's, it's really important uh, because there is that potential kind of healing, I think, in feeling the pain, but not if we get 
So it's exactly really as you described. And it struck me when you said, uh, looking at my life and taking responsibility for things. I think we kind of have to take responsibility for not being able to take responsibility because the things we've done that hurt ourselves and hurt others, we had no vote in those moments. We couldn't not do those things. We were helpless, just like other people are helpless when they hurt us. They may think they're hurting us. They may want to, they may even be, enjoy hurting us, but they're actually helpless, helplessly reacting to their own inner struggles and their own inner pain. So you see, we're, we're, we can see that we're not so different than other people. You know, I remember when uh, George w, w was president. Remember that? <laughs> Don't you wish we could go back there? <laughs> we thought it was so horrible. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. So, uh, so um, I was uh, watching some... TV, maybe CNN or something, and he was, uh, President Bush was going to visit the first group of widows from the Iraq war. And they show him walking down the, the hallway to this room where the women were waiting from the great president walking down like this. And he opens the door to this room and he sees these women and he bursts out crying like a baby, like a baby weeping. Shit, I can't hate him anymore. <laughs> I, I, you can't, you know? And so much compassion came up in me automatically. You know, just look at this idiot. Look what he's done. Look at the, the suffering that he's created for so many people. And himself, his own actions. He has to pay for his own actions. Nobody can pay that bill for us. And I just, and he... He was the pawn of big business. He was all this. He did all this stuff, right? But still, he's going to pay for that. And I couldn't, it, it killed me. I, it really, you know. So I, that's kind of the way it is. We're all just bouncing off of everything all day long. We don't get much vote. Spiritual practice is, is fine, is the only way we'll ever get a vote about our actions and, and our behaviors and our reactions. And, uh, yeah, so I often think of that. Anyway, next question. Um, you both are, are very giving with your time and your art. And being a professional caregiver and being a mother and being a wife and doing that, I find that um, I'm very depleted. Um, with constantly giving, and everybody always is like, gimme, 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 and they're needy, they're doing this. And you both give that, like, even at the end of last night's skirt, and I was like, no encore, no no more, that's it, it's over, we can't go longer. <laughs> and, um, and I was just wondering what you guys do or how you replenish, because you have to give so much of your energy when you perform or you... That, that takes a lot of energy out of somebody. I would have, I mean, I know it does me. I'm presuming it does you, the amount of energy that you give. And you don't always get that energy back. And then you have to go out and give it again and again and again. And, um, you know, how do you keep yourself in that form? I mean, practice is one thing. Living well is one thing. But there's a, some sort of mental exhaustion that 
I find that I get overwhelmed with, and sometimes my practice, I feel like it's just, I feel mm -hmm. um, depleted even when my practice isn't giving me what I need. Well, it seems to me that the, I, I, I hear you, you, I think it's what depletes us is the expectations that don't get met by the world around us. Like you're giving, 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 trying to help people, but you're not feeling that there's a response from the world the way you would like it. And that, that's kind of the expect, that just seems to deplete. Uh, I get that feeling, you know, that that's what's going on. And I think if you, uh, if we all just do what we do and don't have so many expectations about the responses we get from our, our actions, we'll be a lot less depleted. For instance, I'm sharing my practice with you. I'm not trying to get you off. I'm not, I'm not sitting here wondering like, gee, I hope they're having great experiences because they'll like me more. You know, that's not what we do. I'm, I'm doing my practice with you. That's, we're, we're doing it together. So I don't get depleted from that. I get depleted from traveling and airplanes and the fact that I'm 99 years old. <laughs> that's what gets me depleted. But, you know, it's not, I don't get that depleted from, from what I'm doing because I don't have those kind of, I'm actually in, enlivened by it, by the, by the way it all comes together. And it helps my concentration even when it, there's a whole room full of people singing. So, um, yeah. I think if you, you know, but you do have to take care of yourself and all that stuff on the physical plane. But I think if you just uh, were more, in a sense, self-contained in your actions, those, the, the, the drainage wouldn't happen so much, you know? Maybe not. What do you think? Yeah, I, I was thinking something really kind of similar. I was, I was in my mind thinking, well, is it different as a mother, you know, than all the other relationships? Um, yes. <laughs> I, that was the vote, yes. Uh, you know, often um, there's a sneaky thing in, in that giving for any of us, which is very similar to what Christian does was just saying, feeling responsible for making it work, feeling responsible for having it received well. And that is actually out of our hands. And I think even with a child, right? Like I, I did a um, <coughs> this Skype thing for a friend in the West Coast for her yogurt, 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 yogurt teacher trainees. Yogurt, yogurt, yogurt teacher trainees. We're making yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> it's my new skill. <laughs> Yoga teacher trainees, and I said that um, there's this quality called equanimity, which uh, is it's sort of a weird word for us, but it, it doesn't mean coldness or indifference. It means balance, you know, and in that balance is recognition of things like what we don't know. You know, sometimes we, ha we make an effort to make something better, and it doesn't happen immediately. That doesn't mean it's never going to happen, right? But we're not getting that instant gratification or... Uh, balance that comes from wisdom, like, it's not in my hands. I can do and should do everything I can, and then there needs to be a kind of letting go, because I can't make it so, um, all of that. So I said one of the uh, interesting examples in the Buddhist text uh, is a parent whose child is now an adult. 
because there's love and connection and caring and communication and the recognition, like, I can't make their choices for them. I can't decide this is what you're going to do for a living or this is the partner you're going to be with or whatever. So that doesn't negate all the love and the caring. It just surrounds it in a way. So I use that example, and all these people in that class apparently had young children, and they all said, it's like that too when they're young, you know? And, and so there's something about that kind of letting go, accompanying the effort, which I think makes it easier. And then it also made me think of what is one of my all-time favorite stories, because um, you have to have a set of boundaries somehow, somewhere. You have to think, you know, I know they really want me to do this, but I need an app or whatever it is. You know, I just need to. Um, it's my new T-shirt. I need an app. Oh, what a good idea. What a great T-shirt, huh? What a good idea. <laughs> and then people say to you, you need an app. You think, all right, thank yeah, you okay, for reminding thanks. me. I need an app. I'll be back in a little while. Thank you. But I, I was part of this four-year program um, to this place called the Garrison Institute in Garrison, New York, where we brought... Uh, yoga and meditation to domestic violence shelter workers, to frontline workers in the shelters. And um, we started with frontline workers, and then uh, the directors and supervisors of the various shelters were really intrigued by what they saw happening. So they said they wanted a program. So we had a parallel program for them. And then somewhere in the course of that, uh, they themselves coined the phrase a culture of wellness. Uh, which is what they wanted to institute at the workplace. Now, these are pretty brutal workplaces. Um, and remember, the, the reach of a culture could be your own body and mind. It could be your desk. It could be your classroom. It could be whatever. So uh, they all started talking about what might help contribute to a culture of wellness at work. And so some of them, I mean, some of it was very different. Somebody said, I'll, bring, I'll start a rooftop garden. And some of it, interestingly enough, was the same. Every single person talked about a physical space where people could just go and chill, you know. And this one woman said, I've decided that in the interest of, of helping foster a culture of wellness, I'm going to start taking a lunch break. And everyone in the room who did not work in a shelter was completely aghast. And we said, you don't take a lunch break? Isn't it in your contract? And she said, oh, it's in my contract, but there's so much pressure and so much to do and there's so much suffering and everybody always needs me, but now I can see I can't go on and just give and give and give. I, I have to do that. So, Because we were meeting uh, in the city in between retreats. We got to hear her progress. So first time she came in, she said it didn't work. She said, I closed the door, but somebody crouched down and looked through the keyhole. And they saw that I was in there and I didn't get a break. Maybe three weeks later, she came back and she said, it worked. She said, I closed the door and turned off the lights and I got a break. Mm -hmm. And I realized sort of the most audacious moment, most likely, in that whole story was realizing she needed it, that she was going to go for it, that she was going to do whatever <clears throat> it took to, to make it happen. And sometimes it's like that. Um, because nobody, no human being can just go on forever. Um, we say no, or we have somebody say no for us, or we, you know, uh, recognize like, yeah, I've, you know, I'm flying from, last time I flew uh, was from San Francisco. My plane was six hours late. 
Um, and it was one of those, like, of course, they never tell you it's going to be six hours late. It's like every 20 minutes, they say another 20 minutes, you know, and you don't know what to do. Should I bail? Should I try to get a flight tomorrow? Where's the hotel? But I hung in there. Um, and uh, hour five, which was the hardest hour, um, somebody came up to me and said, are you Sharon Salzberg? And I thought, oh, I was this close to, like, losing it, <laughs> having a temper tantrum on the floor. <laughs> it's a good thing you came up now and not, like, 10 minutes, you know? Like. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I ended up, I, I literally walked into my apartment at 4.15 in the morning. Um, and I know I can't, like, schedule myself, you know, so that uh, I have a flight and I'm doing something 9 a.m. the next day. It's just, like. Yeah. It's impossible. And so you sort of craft your life so that to the best of your ability, at least there's some uh, respite, you know, from, from that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for all you do. Um, please. Um, my partner and I are undergoing some, some radical and slow transformations. I mean, in years, not in days. Um, and uh, with her, with all that changes, um, her changes have been coupled with dissociative identity disorder and um, body and um, uh, mind recall uh, memories that are difficult, um, a kind of spiritual crisis. Um, and by the way, both of you have been helpful in that for, for both of us. As her partner, I struggle to have a role beyond just being there. And, you know, in some ways, I want to let go of that feeling um, without letting go of her. You want to let go of the feeling of the struggle? <clears throat> yeah. Um, I think in a way it's, uh, it's such a useful struggle uh, in life that maybe part of it is... is uh, honoring the nature of that struggle because it's, it is so profound and not just in a particular relationship, you know, to find that place where our presence is the, is the gift and not our strategy for making it better. Um, it's not easy, but it comes up all over the place. And I once had a friend who was extremely depressed, like forever, although it turned out not to be forever, interestingly enough, uh, he's much better now, but it seemed like it was going to be forever. And I went to this teacher, Sonny Rinpoche, and I basically said, what should I do? What can I possibly do to make it better? And he said, stop trying, you know, which is a very subtle teaching because it didn't mean abandon him. It didn't mean don't show up. He was in a, a hospital at that point. Uh, he meant be there in a different way, which was not easy. Um, and if anything, he said, be there and bring into the room mentally like these positive things. You know, there's love in the universe, there's rainbows, whatever, uh, so that you're creating a different space. And it was very interesting after that because um, it's not easy to do. And being in that hospital room watching other people visit because, I mean, it's not a pleasant place to be either. So if anyone was visiting, it was like a, really nice gesture on their parts. And 
sometimes you could just watch. I could just watch the the way people's offerings uh, almost became kind of demands. Like, take 15 drops of this and you'll definitely be out of here in a week. Um, Because I could feel that that was being experienced by him as a kind of pressure. Like, get with it. Like, what if it's not over in a week? You know, what if I fail you and your drops? (laughs) You know, uh, and just to be there and and realize it was both. It was incredibly generous and wonderful that people were showing up. And how do we show up? Um, And, you know, it was just a really profound time for me in in that and so that's part of it you know it's like it's a worthy struggle um because it it does manifest in a lot of other places as well and and it's important and there's also um sometimes you just have to have fun or something you know like you just have to have a good time as you can have uh because not all work you know it's not all working it out and i i think um it's also something I learned from Buddhism where in, in Buddhist teaching, suffering is not redemptive. The point is not to suffer. The point is to be different with our suffering, just as it is to be different with our pleasure, not to fall into, it's also humid here, you know. It's no good. Uh, and the difference is what we're going for. You know, it's not necessarily that great to just suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and not give yourself a break. And, um, because you'll get tired and then it's different, you know, the way we are with things. It's maybe not that onward leading. So, uh, you've got to figure out for you and together, you know, what does that look like? Like, um, take a walk. I don't know, you know, like just, just bring that element in and it, it does change things. Okay. So. A little to Lisa. Mira 
Santa 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, 
They can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.